Hey everyone, welcome back to the Leech Podcast, the most visceral podcast. The Leech is a show about movies that suck the life out of you, and they also stick with you. And it may even be good for you, like a leech. I'm your host, as always, Evan Kate, and I have a special guest today, Max Romanowski, who is my cousin. Hey Max, welcome to the show. Hello Evan, thank you so much for having me. Freaking jazzed to be here. This is very exciting for me. Uh, listeners, you may not know this, but Max is a film studies PhD student at, is it Eastern Illinois University? Southern. No. Southern. The, oh, right. Sorry. The Salukis. Yes. The Fighting Salukis. So Max is here with us and we'll learn more about him as we go. And he um, has chosen our movie for today, which is Children of Men, Alfonso Cuaron's 2006 film starring Clive Owen and Julianne Moore and others. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Before we do so, as always, we always are looking to expand our pond. So to that end, if you would like to contact us on Twitter, at Leech Pondcast, as well as The Leech Pondcast on Instagram, please send us your questions, your comments, your videos, and we will be glad to communicate with you there. So without further ado, let's dive into this movie and to our conversation with Max. So Max, tell us more about yourself. What what are you up to? What are you doing? Why film studies? Great question. <laughs> it's a great question to ask me. I love answering it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I think it all sort of started when I, I was trying to shortcut the system of like, what's a job where I can have the most amount of fun? And so in college, that was making movies. And so I went and got film production. And then I was, was spending so much time watching movies and like didn't want to put any effort into making them. So I was like, well, there mm. needs to be kind of a switch here, uh, which is where the rest of my education slash still my education now is going. But beyond that, uh, I'm interested in I'm a person who likes to take things apart as much as possible. I think the joke is the funniest when it has been dissected and explained to the fullest <laughs> really no, legitimately uh nothing is it's actually a dream podcast of mine called ruining the joke where we take oh bits from movies and tv shows that are really funny and talk about why they are so funny oh i love this it doesn't actually exist but i i always have podcast ideas so i i think that getting into the minutia of existence is great and interesting um and film studies in addition to being just something that i think is really fun is one incredibly accessible just about everybody's doing it. The number of people who at this moment are absentmindedly watching Netflix is astronomical, mm-hmm. but it's also got its, it's dipping its toes into everything. Mm. Sociology, philosophy, psychology, all these different things are happening. And the nexus nucleus of it all is film studies. So that kind of lets that intersection happen. Um, and then additionally, uh, I'm envious of people I think who can do differently, but uh, I think we can't not think about everything. We can't not think about existence. I think in some sense, I think there's like a, a moral imperative Ah. to be conscious of what we're watching, how we're behaving, how we interact, how we're evolving as a society and as individuals. Um, So for me, there's sort of this moral obligation of, can I be a better human being? Can I care for the people around me the best? Can I be the most fully realized rendition of myself the fact maybe i can like learn enough and listen enough uh which is 
an idealistic rendition of the the reality of i like learning how much i don't know yeah oh i love that well i love that that brings together both like your clear sort of curiosity and interest in a lot of different things but also desire to connect to people and to understand how to be in the world um so I, I love that. I think that resonates with a lot of what's driven us here on the leech as well. So you are a, a very fitting guest for us. Um, so Max, tell us why. So when, when we were talking about doing this podcast, Max and I were debating a bunch of different movie ideas and kicked around a, a few. And this one just kept coming to the, the surface. So why Children of Men? Because um, it's great. <laughs> right. No, I, I mean, I wanted if I was going to I mean, I would have talked about any movie you, you, you said, but if if the decision was to me, I wanted to pick something that, like, to write off the bat that I knew I could talk about for forever and that I knew I would love. And also something I hadn't seen in a while. And Children of Men kind of ticks all those boxes in the sense that I like movies where as you're watching them, you recognize you're watching what's going to be one of your favorite movies. Doesn't happen. Oh, yeah. with all of, not all of your, my favorite movies are like that. I've watched some, and then three years later, I'll realize that this movie is is layered and, and phenomenal. But sometimes you watch a movie and it instantly grabs you and instantly stands out to you as you recognize its significance as you're doing it. And Children of Men is that for me, and it's been that I, I've that seems to be a a common experience with people that I've talked about in this movie mm. when they watched it. So it, it felt apt to talk about it. And then I think also just additionally, I didn't, maybe this was subconscious, but there's something about the threatening of, a, of, of humanity's future mm. that felt relevant to now. Yeah. Yep. Um, watching this when I was living in Pasadena on my laptop back in 2015 was a different experience than in the summer of 2021. Yeah. Uh, which by the way, don't watch it on your laptop. I didn't have a TV, so that's all <laughs> I could do. I, right. I watched it on TV this time. So yeah, the, I mean, the, sh- the long and short of it is I just really like this movie. Uh, it's rare that a movie, a movie knows it means something and is important and actually is those things. Uh, and, and I always feel that when I watch Children of Men. Yeah, thank you. I, I was feeling similarly. I saw it many years ago for the first time and appreciated the craft, appreciated the story, was really moved by it. And definitely felt by the end there was just this rush to the end and we'll talk about the closing of the film but i got to the end and the first time and i was exhausted and i thought oh my goodness this was so much and it just and wait that's it it's all done and i think this time through knowing what was coming i was able to pay attention to more of the details and see how lived in the the story felt uh they just paid so much attention to details in the film and i think that maybe speaks to what you're describing by how how authentic the film feels and how when you it connects on some kind of visceral level, like, oh, these, these are people I'd want to hang out with. These are people, even though they're in these very strange, dangerous circumstances, they feel like my people in a way. And I'd hang out with yeah. Jasper any day. Yeah. Oh, Jasper. Jasper. Uh, Jasper. Yeah. Jasper's Jasper. <laughs> uh, we'll oh, pour one out for Jasper. We'll, we'll talk about him. So on that note, Max, please give us a synopsis of this movie. What happened? I would love to. Boom. London, 2027. Youngest kid in the world just died. He's 18. Women are infertile. We don't know why. Our protagonist, Theo, used to be an activist. Not anymore. Bummed out. Divorced. We learned because um, him and his wife, Julian, played by Julianne Moore, uh, their their kid died. Kind of ruined the marriage. Zapped him out of everything. 
However, she's still an activist, needs him to get papers to get people through checkpoints because the whole world's sort of in disarray because nobody has nobody cares about anything anymore because everybody's going to die. He reluctantly agrees, realizes that he is helping transport someone who is the first pregnant woman in 18 years. Mm. Big deal. Um, if you let me tell you, if you haven't seen... Oh, by the way, I'm going to spoil the end of the movie. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> don't... Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, like, that's the conceit of the movie. So it's not as we know that I'm not. But definitely, if you haven't seen it, pause this. Go watch it. It's rated R, FYI. You know, like, it's yes. not. Yes. Look, this isn't this isn't Aaron on Nick Jr. This is this is 1030 or later at night airing kind of movie. Yes, that's right. Uh, that you. feels important to say. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. so long and short of it, they're constantly on the run. We don't get into, we don't get into the nitty gritty just right now. Uh, she has the baby. All of the people traveling with with her, her name's Key, all the people traveling with her and Theo slowly falling away, not surviving the journey until it's Theo and Key. She's had the baby and they're running through a a war-torn area as an uprising begins in order to get to a checkpoint, a buoy on the coast where a uh, potentially fictional or rumored organization is going to meet them to help take care of the child and to potentially restart humanity that's the 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 non-cinematic uh recap so as always on the leech we like to start by talking about a theme of this movie a leechy theme a theme that sticks with you that sticks with you throughout the movie or after you're done watching it and i guess i'll start us off um and then max i'd love to hear what theme stuck with you but for me, the, the lychee theme is migration. And I think about the obvious one of Key migrating from one place all the way through these checkpoints, all the way across uh, to the coast, and of course, Theo with her. Um, but there's also these other folks migrating throughout the film. And I think one of the, the brilliant parts of this movie for me is the way Quaron's camera is always also moving and migrating and roving and you think it's following Key and Theo for most of the time, but then it'll kind of like leave them for a moment and look elsewhere at refugees or folks who are being detained in what are basically like Abu Ghraib style prisons or concentration camps even. And the film, I mean, the camera is always sort of drawing your attention toward these these refugee folks who are, they speak many languages, many of them have disabilities uh, they're clearly hungry, starving, poor, move, trying to move to a place that is safe. And of course, Key and Theo are that in the microcosm. But migration, I think, is throughout this film. Um, it's, of course, in part because of the sort of apocalyptic event or events that have occurred. There's been a pandemic. No one's having kids. Uh, there's been wars, clearly. You see this industrial decay you see fields where they've burned up cows. Uh, very, very strange images, um, but they're always on the move. They're always migrating from somewhere to another for safety. So that's my theme for the movie. I like that a lot, uh, in t- especially in terms of um, the, the the technical means through which the film is shot. Um, there's sort of this, I don't know if it's an adage or something you see a lot of great movies do, and it's that the first scene of a movie or the first shot of a movie sometimes uh, teaches you how to watch the movie. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. And so 
Children's Men is is another great example of where you do that. Um, the entire opening prologue is um, one uninterrupted shot that ends that ends with a bombing. Yeah, it's a oneer, right? It's yeah, what yeah. they're called oneer. Uh, yeah, yeah. oneers. I mean, this movie is tricky with oneers, and we can talk about that. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously there are a lot of them. Finding cuts is really hard to do in it uh-huh. because there are a lot of them. Because because the point of the shots aren't like he's not trying to impress you with how long can I make this scene go and what can I do to make it look cool? Though I'm sure he's not mad about the reaction. No, it does look cool. Yeah. Uh, But so there's lots of cuts at various times, but I do believe that the fur, the opening scene is, is, is an entire, is entire in one take. It's, it's, it's perceived to be at the very least. Anyway. So we get that sort of roaming camera. There's so much of the world we've taken in that first shot. And that's super useful because the explosion happens. Uh, both Theo and the explosion take up the same frame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is so useful because a cut to an explosion is fine. But if we're talking about a lived-in world, having Theo exist in the same physical space, we can see them in the same thing, is such a great reminder of how tangible this world is. He's a part of it. He's in it. And then, then, then there's just a, a really great sound tweak that I love is that we get the ringing ear thing, which comes back, is kicked off there but then sort of lingers for the first couple oh, yeah. minutes of the movie um as he's sort of unstably affected by that but all that to say the theme of migration which is sort of, is not a term i had ever thought to articulate like that is communicated in our first in our first moments mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. both uh both literally and i think figuratively through how it's, it's shot so I, I i agree with that i think that's great yeah, and maybe just another scene that comes to mind as you were describing that is the scene where they're with Julianne Moore in the car and they're they're blowing the ping pong ball back and forth. And it's this moment of levity and, and intimacy, right? And then the camera pans forward just a little bit because Julianne Moore's in the front seat and you look out the windshield and they're being attacked. <laughs> uh, yes. And we'll, I think we should talk more about that scene in a minute because that is maybe on my short list for Leachia's scene but it's a great it's a great choice <laughs> but it's also capturing right the way the camera is roving while they themselves are roving as well well and now you've said migration i can't think of the time that i can the number of times that a scene's only goal is to get from a to b is, mm-hmm. is sort of innumerable uh another scene that i had forgotten existed but is really good in how stripped down it is is when they're escaping from the farm and they can't get the car to start. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the low, it's the least sexy chase scene that kind of, exists. Yeah. But, but there, there's a grounded realism in it that I, realism's the wrong word, but uh, you feel mm-hmm. like you're, you're there. Like if you were in that situation, a similar, this, a similar phenomenon would happen. But again, that's another point of the victory for them is to just go from point A to point B successfully. And that's right like the crux of the scene yeah uh and we see that i mean and i mean right obviously the arc of the entire movie is itself literally a journey yeah yeah good okay so max what's your theme um so uh, do they have to be singular words yours was one word <laughs> no 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 do, yeah oh uh, i mean on the most umbrella sense uh and what i i think is great about this movie is the is the the significance of hope for the perseverance of um, I would say life, but that both in term in the literal sense and also the metaphorical sense. So every person who's living in that world is guaranteed, more or less guaranteed the same length of life that you and I are right now. Uh-huh. But because they know that no one else is going to live after the, after them, that ch- that fundamentally changes them. It shouldn't. Who like yeah right? In some sense, who cares 
what people are talking about in the year 2555. You're not going to be there to see it. But if nobody's talking about it, then anything, then that's, that's affecting somehow. And it changes how you're living your life now. And I can't get over yeah, that's nice. the idea that hope is tied to something that you'll never see. And without that, without any sort of ability to believe that can happen, what's the point of now? It's a, it's sort of the, uh, the nihilist silver bullet in terms of we're always looking for meaning. And the idea that mm. there isn't meaning is hard, I th- is hard for society to take in writ large. I'm not going to speak for every individual, individual human. A scene that I love that really pinpoints this. Um, well, there's a couple scenes. One that I love is just on the train. There's a great th- shot that says, um, I, I, I'm not going to mess up with the ver- verbatim, but it's some graffiti that says, whoever's last, turn the lights out. Um, <laughs> oh, which I find to be really great. And it's sort of, it's both welcoming to we're all a part of this situation together. And it's also isolating and defeating, uh, which is really telling. And then also you see, if you take uh, Theo's journey in this, there's lots of ways to talk about how he sort of becomes active again, but I think the most useful way to talk about it is his is through his bottle of alcohol. Nice. So we see it at maybe three or four different points in the, during the film, and the movie doesn't do anything to over to to foreground this. It isn't a it isn't a beat in the movie, but it's subtle. Um, the first handful of times we see it, it's he's usually trying to cope and grief with some deal with grief, whether someone just died or he's upset, and so he'll take a giant swig of some whatever hard liquor he uh he has on him uh which i mean like the ultimate sort of death drive in terms of a reliance on alcohol a numbing sort of only going towards death in in sort of a metaphoric and kind of literal sense the last time we see him use the alcohol he doesn't drink it he uses to sanitize his hands for the delivery yeah that's nice uh a great repurposing i love i call that sort of i call it i don't know if there's if this is an official term i call it a sort of narrative symmetry where Something that's significant at the beginning tips off and comes back in a useful way and often repurposed way. So he said the same thing is used for coping, but its method is one of nihilism, of despair, of numbing, and the other is of life, of hope, of promise. Uh, and I think that's a. And I said the movie's not out to show that as a huge beat, but I like it's so subtle and it's so simple, and it tells you he's all in at that point. Yeah, that's that's really well put. Listeners didn't see this, but I was just drinking some Japanese whiskey as we started the pod as a, as a nod to my friend Theo. Um, I did not make the connection that you made, but I, I think that's a really, really beautiful one. And I like whiskey. I'm not saying you shouldn't drink whiskey. I had whiskey the other night. But yeah, I think that's such a it's such a great it's a great world building. Like, I love when things are two things. Yeah, it makes sense thematically and if it was just that that would be perfect but it's also a great touch because that is a good all things considered that's a coherent decision for him to do like diegetically in the world mm-hmm. uh so I, I like that yeah i should be clear it doesn't have to be diegetically good that's just a fun bonus no i think you're right and i think what i like about that too is again there's sort of these microcosm macrocosm stuff going on so mm-hmm. theo through the loss of his son has already in a way gone through the loss of what children or fertility represent, right? This hope for a future. He went through it earlier than everyone else. Yeah. So he he's undergone something himself that now the whole world is experiencing. Um, and he himself has felt the despair that the whole world seems to be experiencing too. And yet um, when he meets Key uh, and as he gets involved with this journey, 
you see, I think the word you used was activated. You see him come alive and activated. Mm-hmm. Um, even even till the end of the film when, spoiler, I mean, he dies at the end protecting and saving her uh, and the child. Presumably. I don't know if it, it feels like oh, yeah. there's like this much ambiguity, but I I don't have any problem saying that he, he probably He probably died. I will, at the, but the point is that he's content, actually. he's he, he has this smile on his face and he knows that she's going to be safe and that the child is safe and that he has sort of done everything he can. Yeah. Um, and that is a very different Theo than the th- Theo we met at the beginning of the film. And also, if you break down dialogue in the movie, Theo's not saying that much, uh, which is also particularly useful. Of That journey is so apparent, and he has done so little to verbalize that journey, which is so useful. That made it sound like it was a bad thing. It's so good because it's clear, it's organic, but the movie never has to tell you that Yeah, each stage. It's another weird thing. I don't know if this is sort of part of it. And I'd love to see your thoughts on it. This movie is very interested with what uh, Theo's wearing on his feet often. Yeah. I was going to ask you, that was my big question. What's up with his feet? Why? And there's two things. I have two questions about Theo. Why is it always about his feet? And then what's up with the animals loving him? Why do the dogs love him? That's a great point too. I actually hadn't thought about the animal thing. Other than that, um, supposedly there's almost a shot of, in almost every shot of the movie, you can see an animal um, or like a dog, which from a filming perspective is a nightmare. You don't want animals. I'm sure. Pets. So yeah. the fact that they went all the way to do that is crazy. But I have to think about the dog one. The feet one is is great um, because we first see the notion when he is eavesdropping and he steps out into the mud. Uh, and then he's, he's in flip-flops yep. after... When does he get flip-flops on? In Is it at Jasper's? Yeah. The second time? Yes, of course, because who else? And then he's barefoot and cuts his foot while they're trying to hide out. And then and it's only once then that he gets shoes. Uh and I mean there's sort of a a a, a purely aesthetic and convention read would say like maybe Quran really likes die hard. But um Sure. <laughs> It's a, it's a nod to John McClane. Yeah. I love it. I would say that probably wouldn't hold up to scrutiny. I mean, they're both movies about Christmas, right? About the coming of... Yeah. I mean, Die Hard's a movie about Christmas, and this movie is like... I mean, we haven't gotten in, We'll get into it, I'm sure. The Marian and the incarnational imagery. Some very some very uh, clear uh, biblical imagery in that sense. Um, I don't know if I could link it any further to some of the stuff we've been talking about, but... I, I think it feeds in really nicely to this idea of like, how do you communicate someone's journey mm. non-verbally? Yeah. And so there's a reason that a hit on the shoes when like, when he puts the shoes on the table for him to wear means something to you. Uh, there's a, there's a coming into the role. There's this idea of like, like forged in the crucible. This is a really, really weird parallel, but I think it's useful is there's, there was a, there's a, a genre of films, I think from probably like the sixties. I don't fact check me on that, but called like hard body films. And they're like huh. rough and tumble macho guy films. Uh, <laughs> and it's it, like, and they're pretty like, I mean, they're, the, they're in no way related to this, but uh, part of what they, they offer. And then what movies like Indiana Jones adapted is this idea that as a story progresses, the physical form of a person whether it's what they're wearing, cuts, dirt, sweat, is tangible as the movie goes on. Yeah, uh, Shaun of the Dead is another movie that does that really, really well. Um, so as his feet become worse, for lack of a better term, as he's, I mean, that's something we kind of take for granted in journeys like this. The idea that there, there's a sense of renewal right before the final climax where he's come into his role 
and he's gifted with Hermes shoes, right? Like, ah. um, that is, I don't know if that, I don't know if that, that the Hermes par- parallel is perfect, but is this idea of he's leveled up uh, and he's ascended and now he gets rewarded after this perilous journey. Cause feet are like, feet are so, what's the word? Vulnerable. Vulnerable, right? Yeah. Well, and I think too, I, I also read it as each pair of shoes he has to get from someone else. And he's so alone and insular at the beginning of the film. And by the end, he has this very strange community um, around Key and the child, but a community that is in fact quite quite beautiful and like willing to lay down their lives for each other. Um, and so he's now reliant on people for his shoes and for the journey uh, in a way that I think demonstrates in a material way the the moral spiritual journey he's also been on. I think that's that's quite apt as well for sure. Um, oh, you did miss one place where the feet show up as well. Oh yeah, where? Uh, it's not Theo's feet. It's when he goes to visit his is it his cousin who gets him the passes and has the statue of David. Oh, that's right. I don't know if you noticed. There's two dogs laying in front of the statue and David is missing a foot. <laughs> missing his yeah, and that David has traveled from Italy to london migration and he's missing a foot migration again yeah that's great no i mean yeah i remember seeing that there's also something um i don't know this another great bit of world building is just this idea that rich people are just like oh let's just take this all this art for itself i mean (laughs) um because who cares yeah well maybe that's a good transition like we usually do lychee scene next but i think we've hit on some characters who's the lychee character for you I mean, yeah, his, I mean, his cousin is, is useful only in the sense of like, he's like the villain in a movie that I'm starring in, in terms of his motto to life is like, just don't think about it, which like, uh, maybe I'm both infinitely jealous of and like livid at because like, how can you not think about this? Uh, So I think that's a great choice, but I I honestly would, would put um, Luke. Oh, that was mine. That was my choice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Luke is such an interesting character in that the best character is the one uh, who, the one who opposes you but fun- functionally has the same goal he just doesn't agree with you how but how to how to go about it well and there i mean and obviously his, his is his goals are, are particularly of an, of an exploiting nature right like he see he sees the 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 child not as a as a singular human in the way that society is comprised of singular humans and Single humans who all throughout the world are hurting. Uh, this 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 kid is only a a symbol for like a proletariat uprising. Yep. Yeah, he wants the cause over the child, which even though the child defines the cause. Yeah, and and actually, he then ends up mirroring the very people he's fighting against to also choose their own cause over individuals. Uh, right. But but he's he's misguided. But he's not. If if the villain, if the true villain of of this movie, or the true lost cause in this movie, is someone who doesn't have any hope anymore, he's not that person. No, he's working for it. He's just lost. He's slightly like off, right? Like he's it 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 is fitting that he first finds refuge and safety with Luke yeah. and with julian like he is on the right team in a way but he's you know at this crucial moment can't help but allow his way of doing it his version of the cause to supersede the person yes um there's 
this i'm gonna be the i just read this the other day i'm gonna pretend like i know all about it nice uh but there's this really interesting speech i read uh it's called like i'm gonna get the i the exact one is like a greeting to the 21st century or something like that um and it's this this guy is essentially talking about how bad the 20th century was and how frustrating like obviously a lot of bad stuff happened he still sits down to this idea that anytime someone thinks they have a singular way of how every human should be living, mm. they've gone awry in terms of whoever doesn't agree submits. There's coercion, there's violence. Um, and so there's this sort of this thing where Luke has a cause and he has like mission statements and he has he has an army and he has a, a, a specific goal and the the bodies pile up for achieving that, including someone who ostensibly is the better version of him uh julian right someone who feels much more equipped like the movie's a lot easier if she doesn't die unceremoniously in the in the in the beginning of the second act right which is i mean gutsy on quaron's part right of julian moore's a huge star yeah you don't you, you don't kill a named character like you will sorry you don't kill someone as famous as julian moore that right, early right also, I mean, almost, in weird ways, this movie is gutsy and like that and also the actions, you know, the car chase scene that you described a minute ago. That's not a car chase, right? Yeah, that's kind of that you only need to change a couple things. And that's like a really good, um, I don't know, Mr. Bean sequence. <laughs> oh, I was thinking the opposite way, too. I mean, you change a couple of things and it's Fast and the Furious and they're like jumping oh. between cars. <laughs> well, yeah, you would have to really spruce it up. It's the most boring. It, it's like if the next mad max movie lost all of its funding and they're like okay well we gotta do something <laughs> oh that's good yeah you know i think luke is is there for me as well um for the same reasons that you described um maybe an honorable mention i this is a small small thing but uh the repent repenters or the renouncers okay remind gave me a lot of uh leftovers did you ever watch that show the tv show it, yeah the right the guilty remnant they kind of had that vibe you know, the self-flagellating while also condemning the world at the same time. Uh, that... I mean, there's actually a lot of, thema- I mean, thematic parallels of giving up hope now that the world seems to have disappeared, even though, like, they're still going to live as long as they did. Yes. Yeah. The... Now, there, now there's a Leech TV show, am I right? That's right. Oh, great call. Yeah. Uh, Leech listeners, if you'd like for us to do a season on a season of The Leftovers, please just hit us up on Twitter and we'll... <laughs> Wow. We'll try to do that. Got to rewatch that after this. Uh... <laughs> okay, so we've mentioned a few of them, but what's uh, Max? Do you have a lychee scene for us? This is tricky in the sense of um, the movie is so bled into each other. Uh, isolating things is really hard. So I, I think one of the things I, I struggled with when I was watching this, rewatching this movie, is was like, is this like dark enough? Because I am so frequently huh. inspired by the movie. Yeah. Um. As opposed to other movies that are heavy that I love, this one continually encourages me in certain spots because of how things are split. So, like any of the oneers are great instance of this. I'm gonna pick the the the, the final the final battle sequence um, split down the middle because I think this is and this is like the entire movie in a nutshell in the sense that the back half of that is transcendent cinema. Yes. yes. Yep. Uh, the front half of that is the bleakest the movie gets i think in terms of this is the full scale and this is where this is where the the wonder stuff pays off shooting long takes is awesome i am i feel like a kid in college with a fight club poster on my wall i love (laughs) watching 
Is that, I mean, I don't probably, kids, like, film students probably don't do that anymore. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. More I mean, re- 1917 was the most recent, you know. Yeah, that, but yeah, 1970 is a great example, which is another movie that like isn't amazing, but I liked watching it because it looked really cool. Um, so we can talk about how they're cool and how they pulled them off and where the hidden cuts are. And that's a fun conversation I like to have. Uh, there are few movies as use using these long takes as usefully as this one because it's all happening. The scene is so heavy, I think, in large part because of its just continued existence. So he's dodging behind things. There's gunfire, people falling over, people dying, people screaming. There's no it, – it's unflinching because we, if a cut is a – taking a breath or blinking in terms of uh, physiological parallels to symptom mm-hmm. making you don't do you hold your breath and you keep your eyes open <laughs> so it, it's that sort of psychological strain and you see all of that for what I don't know, five seven minutes so a scene where he's running down and normally do it he's running down he see we cut close up we see people in tanks coming the other way we cut back to him runs into the bus we cut into the bus cut back out to them shots the window cut that it's a good scene that all happens and we don't cut away there's an extra bit of weight to that and we feel that intensity we're huddling down with him we see those people it becomes a space that we live in because it's all mapped out for us and like i said we don't cut away and so you feel the weight of that um and so there's a real shot and chaser sense of the the second half where they descend the set steps is, I mean, that's not a leech scene. <laughs> no, I mean, you get goosebumps just thinking about it. Yeah. I think that scene was on my short list. I'll, I'll talk about a different one, but just to piggyback on what you're saying, I think part of what's so leechy about that, and if we're holding both those halves together that you described, it's that it becomes upside down. There's the transformation of people and the setting, the very same setting, that's been so heavy that you can't get out of. And then all of a sudden the very troops that are firing on them from seemingly every angle, basically bow in adoration yeah. to this, ch- this child and key. I think for me, that's the scene sticks with me. You know, it, it the first half maybe is leachy and that it sucks the life out of you, but the second half sticks with you in this more uh, salutary way. But I would say the X factor in a scene like that, and this is tough because not a lot of, it's not something that I think I would have thought to do, uh, but perhaps even more affecting or or noteworthy or, or relevatory about our humanity is something that it's easy to easy to forget in that scene, and it's the how the scene ends. I think it, it's very safe and smart and beautiful if we watch her walk out and ascend, and there's that that reverence. It's not how the scene ends. No, right. Someone right. freaks out about someone else. Someone sees someone's arm twitch or something. A shot's fired. We're back in. Yes. The 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 glimpse of the divine has ended and we're back into a fallen world. And I think that is so good. So maybe that makes the whole scene the leechiest because because it's bookended by the fact that they have this experience, but it isn't enough to fully pull them out of that. They're back to the shooting again. Yeah. The second they think someone might double cross them. Yeah, it's it is revelatory. It is it is apocalyptic in that sense. Yeah. The you know, the literal definition of apocalypse is this revelation. And it's in the midst of an, a post-apocalyptic and literally apocalyptic, apocalyptic setting as the war is going on. And yet this real revelation burns for a moment. Everybody sees it, but then they go back to 
what they were doing before. They go back to fighting. And yeah, I think you're right that that's really leachy. That's, it keeps you from being too content, too, too happy. And, but it also feels real. I mean, this is, I could totally see that happening, right? It's the hard decision that, um, that elevates work like this in that you're, you're risking sacrificing the obvious and more narratively polished option, which I, I'm not, I'm not knocking. I don't want to make it sound like he, he cracked the code, but you're risking a worse product and a worse constructed scene uh, by doing that. But when that gamble pays off, it, it, that's where you transcend. Uh, and and it, it makes you ask this really weird question of how could, how could they possibly go back after seeing that? Mm. But in all great movies, that question then, you know, is the movie a window or a mirror? And so in that question, the, the question, it's sort of reflected back on you and, <laughs> we're not watching the first child in 18 years in front of us. And we're not shooting a bomb into a, a building of civilians, but where do we, where do we see, but that is happening in our world. I mean, well, yes, absolutely. Um, um, yeah. So like in the societal level, and also what are my encounters with the divine that are intercut between nothing? Yeah. And how could I possibly go back to the nothing after the encounter with the divine? Yeah, I mean, that's right. And I think, well, let's let's talk about that when we get to Haruda therapy. I think there's more to unpack there. Yeah. Let me shout out a couple scenes. I think we mentioned it before when they're in the van and Julian and Theo are doing this trick that they used to have where they would basically blow a ping pong ball between each other and catch it in their mouth. It's playful. It's intimate. There's a knowingness. You could tell they've they've been married. They've known each other. Familiarity, yeah. But you also know their story, and you know there's a lot of sadness there. And then within two minutes, she's dead, and they've been attacked, and they're running for their lives. And I think the the suddenness of the tonal shift as the camera moves is just something I'm not going to forget. And it's a, it's a scene that really, really stuck with me this time for the intimacy of that relationship, for all that is symbolized by that silly little ping pong ball trick, but then just the sudden turn to almost like a horror film. It's, like, it's almost like they're being attacked by zombies, really. Yeah, and the camera perspective is doing a lot of work in that scene to aid that. It's something that, if not felt, if not articulated, is definitely viscerally experienced in that you're you're robbed of a perspective to really fully understand what that, what's going on in that scene in that mm-hmm. I, I find myself feeling like I'm leaning over and trying to see get a better glimpse of what they're dealing with um and you're robbed of that and so you're like you're it's claustrophobic you're stuck in the car with them and so that space that was a second ago great and mundane in the best possible way you think you can relax you think you can be you're safe right yeah we're still physically in that space and as confused as they are, because we ne- we're never om- omnisciently aware of what's happening in that scene other than just like, oh, they're blocking us off. Wow, I guess there's a lot of people. Okay, back- okay, we're going back now. So I, that's so, yeah. All that to say is, again, a great a great instance of, of the form only complementing that dramatic shift you're describing. Yeah. So then the other one I would point out, I guess two. I want to do two. And these will be brief. One is... Uh, the second time that Theo is with Jasper, he's brought Key and Miriam to hide out, and it becomes clear that they their their walls have been breached and they have to run again. And so Key and Miriam and Theo 
get out the door, they drive up to this hill, they're hiding, and they see Jasper basically defending them from Luke and these other folks. They the Luke ends up killing Jasper, but before he does so, you can see Jasper trying to delay them, and he goes back to this joke that he had, which is really kind of crass, but it's like, hey, pull my finger, you know, pull my finger. Again, it's this moment of ordinary uh, joking, this sort of pleasant thing, and then there's just this act of utter brutality, right? I mean, this film toggles between those, the mundane, the, the you know, mildly comic, to murder, just cold-blooded murder. Uh, yeah, well, that scene always, uh, I always circle around that in that he, he asks him twice. He's been shot. And his ans- his his reaction again is to, is to double down on the gag before he gets shot again, the, which right a another like a, a repeated beat of that exact phenomenon you're describing. Yeah, and it's interesting as you say that too. It reminds me maybe it's interesting how that that little phrase changes with each time he says it. So the first time it's sort of a joke, and you could kind of be like, oh, this is a goofy old man," but then the second time it's almost like, "Which pull my which, finger, which, asshole? Which finger is he? Which finger yeah. is he? Is he pulling?" <laughs> Yeah, it's like I'm not going to tell you anything, exactly. Uh, but I'm going to—I'm actually mocking you now, um, right? Which is a little bit of an fu that I, you know, you kind of respect, uh, right? I mean, he—he's—he's confirming he's dying for a principle and for a cause, and he's not going to compromise. Yeah. So then the other one, speaking of dying for a principle, would be my other Leechy scene. Sorry, I've—I've I've done three now, but there's so many in this movie. But it's when Miriam gets taken off the bus, and she. It's when the, the the police officer comes on with the dog, and I don't even know what they're looking for, but they're looking, I guess, to take people who shouldn't be on the bus off the bus. And they know that if they take Key off the bus, she's probably going to get killed and the child will die. And so Miriam basically stands up, starts praying, and I think is trying to just take attention off of Key. And basically the, the police officer thinks she's crazy and then says, okay, take her. And, and they take her and they line her up. And it's, again, this sort of, concentration camp Abu Ghraib style execution area it looks like and so you see her and then the camera focuses on her face at from the perspective of the bus as it drives by and you just see that she's sad she but she's also sacrificed herself for the cause for this this principle of of life and that's just so beautiful and terrifying at the same time that seems doubly coded as well in the sense of right she's praying for deliverance so she she she's doing that as a form of distraction, but that distraction is in itself a form of form of the prayer she's doing verbally. Yeah, which I think is cool. Oh, that's lovely. Okay, so that is uh that's our lychee scene. So let's uh let's take a minute and just go to the beach. So we'll do a little leech on the beach now. We like to take a little moment every episode to you know talk about a time in the movie where we get to just hang out, relax, get some sun. Because let's be real, this is an intense movie, like so many leech movies. And so, Max, where do you go when you just need to to relax for a minute in this film? Um, it's tricky because every almost every relaxing moment is then um, you're insulted for enjoying it by something yeah. really bad happening. Uh, but I'm going to Jasper's house. Uh, yeah. With the exception of like post alarm trigger, um, you you don't yeah. want to mess around with them. And that one scene, that one great scene where Theo's standing and uh, like they're out of focus and like we're dealing with lots of stuff. That's heavy. Everything else with them, um, great. Fun. I, I I don't quote me on this, but I've heard that um Michael Caine uh based 
this character on John Lennon. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but I have heard that. Uh, that's fun. And uh, I'm just a big Michael Caine fan in general. So it, it's, it's, and it's also the only time, we're, like, one of the few times you see Theo kind of at, like, t- tastefully at ease, yeah. even though he's still upset about stuff. So, like, that great one of him, like, trying to tell a joke with all, like, the weed in the background and they got the records on. It's fun. I like it. It's it's lived in. It feels great. Yeah, I think I'm right with you. I think I'm right with you on that. Um, yeah, all the other places, whenever there's a moment of levity, you, the film teaches you whenever there's a moment of levity that something yeah something's coming. Um, yeah, I'll agree with you. Jasper's house. Perfect. Sign me up. All right. Well, that's been our segment of Weech on a Beach. Let's go back to the film itself. Now it's time to feel terrible. <laughs> okay, so Max, this movie, you chose it for many, many reasons. Um, will you start us off with the Haruto therapy of this film? The salutary, even medicinal qualities of this lychee film? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, obviously, they're, they're, the movie exists on the, the, this fulcrum of of hope and nihilism. And so that's where this, I think really circulates around. But what I found is that, uh, this movie does a really great job of, uh, some, uh, defamiliarization, right? So this idea that we're taking something that is apparent and we know, and it's making us reconsider its weight by presenting it in a way that we don't fully appreciate. Uh, the more impressive ones are movies or experiences are the ones that defamiliarize something that is so fundamental to existence. Um, mm-hmm. Shout out to um, This Is Water, um, David Foster Wallace speech, the same kind of concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so how do you defamiliarize the idea of a baby? I wouldn't know. But this this movie is doing that. And so even the baby's cries are something that are that's awesome and beautiful. And so like that last scene where she descends down the stairs and everyone sees it, it transcends everything. It cuts through this idea of that was all of us. And because we're seeing that now, it could be everyone else after us, which is what it means when someone's born now, this moment. A bunch of people just were born as I spoke that sentence. It means that now this movie is a it's a defamiliarization of the of the embodiment of hope that literal new life can bring. Like how exciting is that? That 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 always makes it worth it for me is, is the, this moment as we as we teeter in the movie literally on on the precipice out in the ocean of is anyone coming? What's next? Are we going to survive? Are we going to control this pandemic? What's going on with global warming? International relations stress mm-hmm. me. In that there still is new life and then maybe when there is that life as long as it's there there is maybe still some hope. Uh, and that movie does that through the making the phenomenon of birth, making us recognize that as for as big of a miracle as it is. That's beautiful. That's beautifully put. Thank you. I mean, the movie did it. I, 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 I'm just obsessed with it. Yeah. I, so, I mean, right. So this is the, the, if the opening scene is the establishment that without hope for the future, civilization collapses. Um, the ending of the movie is suggesting that new life can be the hope for the for, for a future that we may never see but could possibly exist yeah that's nice i maybe just to follow up on that do you so the closing title oh, scene yeah. title mm-hmm. comes back on the screen and then there's sounds like multiple children laughing which i wonder how you read that i i heard that as 
they get picked up on the boat and there's other kids on that boat and they're just like this is um this is the sort of arc of humanity kind of sort of heading into uncharted waters but maybe that's a too optimistic no, I, read. I so I, I'd say that I read it. I, I mean, there are a few movies I don't read with the optimistic slant, probably. But I, I, I don't read it as literally. Um, in the sense of, I think that that is the first baby that's been born in 18 years. But the boat coming and the children is then therefore the fundamental representation that contained with that is the is that laughter. And that yeah. the trajectory has been set, achieved made possible that through this child the humanity will be saved now did i accidentally make a crazy overt biblical parallel yes of course but not no not accidental that's i mean i mean that's what the, i mean the movie is certainly the movie is is not i mean i, I mean no movie's about like one thing i don't think that's the primary point the movie's trying to make but it's definitely using that imagery and that evocation to further the point uh, more completely I think that's right. So the the medicinal quality I was going to point to was actually a line from the Bible. I am a div student after all. Yeah, say that can't escape it. But it would be the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. I mean, how much of this film is an analog, or I don't know what what literary term you want to use, but it is a sort of retelling, a modern retelling of Mary, Joseph, and the Christ child, maybe going to Egypt. I don't know however you want to talk about that there is this this child who is the salvation of humanity right now it's a very different context in which this is happening and i don't think quaron is trying to you know paint a picture where this this kid is the son of god or something like that but i do think those echoes are purposeful and and i like just i like what you're saying about how when that child comes down the stairs it's something that makes you reframe and rethink how you think about any child yeah. how you think about any life and in that way, a highly personalized or even incarnational vision of life becomes one that's actually deeply humanizing. So it's, it seems to me something like an argument for um, a radical focus on the personal yeah. as in opposition to, even as in opposition to notions of civilization, because civilization in this movie are pretty much just bound to fight and destroy each other at some point or break down right um, but a focus on the person and the strange sort of communities that can happen when you attend to the person in front of you um, that to me is really really rich it's resonant it reminds me of you know a lot of the the novels and books that i've always loved but that that notion of this one light shining and then illuminating every other part of our life how we see children how we think about our neighbors how we think about life in this world that, that's going to stick with me. Yeah, it's a beautiful movie. Uh, I really like it. Look, if you listen to all of this and you haven't seen it, I hope we've convinced you to watch it. <laughs> also, just to go back through and watch all of his movies, all of Alfonso Cuaron's movies, he's been making bangers seriously for the last 20 years, um, and you should watch all of them. Don't sleep on Harry Potter 3. I would <laughs> never. However, I would be like a bad person if I didn't double a content advisory. Free to Mambatambien. So, you know, <laughs> proceed with caution there. I I didn't Fair. have that warning, and I, I I found myself way out of my depths. Well, and he did Gravity, of course. Oh yeah, I, well, that was I think that was probably my not opening exposure, but like I was in I was in film school when Gravity came out, and I I was real ride or die on that movie. I got in a lot of, a lot of fights about whether or not Gravity was all spectacle or if it actually said something, and I was firmly in the camp that it said something. Yeah, I agree with that. 
Uh, story for another pod. We should do gravity at another point. Yes. Okay, so Max, moment of truth. One to four leeches. How many are you giving this movie? This is really tricky. Um, right, like if I'm reading it purely on like how much I like this movie, right? Like this is probably, I mean, I, I would never, it's hard to pinpoint it. I, I mean, I'd probably put it in my top 10 um depending on like depending on the day right i have to set i'd have to kill a lot of darlings <laughs> so i mean it's four leeches if that's the case um if it's terms of how weighty it is though i'm actually more inclined to to to, to bump it down to closer to two only in the sense that I, I i am so encouraged by right like you look humanity in the face and it's hard but you're rewarded with hope so i'm going to split the difference i'm going to say this is this is a, the, a good old three leecher okay uh because it's weighty and it's great, but I don't feel empty as it ends. Okay. I'd, I'd echo a lot of that. I'm at two. Uh, leaning three, but I'm going to go two. Mostly because I there's, uh, there's so many moments where I do laugh and so many moments of beauty and so many moments where, I don't know, I, I didn't feel quite exhausted by it. Which, <laughs> on one level, is great. I'm glad for that. don't need to feel exhausted by every movie. True. But I think for the full leech effect, you do need that exhaustion along with the medicine. Yeah. So I'm at two. It was not a, uh, it's not a, you were never really here. If anyone's seen that, that's, that's a, another, another movie for another time. <laughs> okay. We'll have to bring you on. So speaking of which Max, uh, you have some things to plug. What are you working on? I do. Um, in terms of things like, I mean, there's lots of things I'm working on that would, would not gain plugging at all. My dissertation, uh, there's, oh. nowhere follow, there's nowhere to follow that. Uh, I'm perpetually trying to write a sitcom, but that's not anywhere. Okay. What you can follow and actually pay attention is that uh, I'm in the process of of uh, co-writing and co-directing a uh, an animated uh, web series Ooh. called uh, Blee Blump and Fletcher Moon Detectives. Okay. Um, it's the... Uh, intergalactic uh buddy comedy of of a human named fletcher and an, an alien named bleeblump solving uh solving crimes in like like a private eye investigate investigation agency on the moon okay we're a little more than halfway done animating the pilot and we're writing the rest of the season uh if you want to follow us on instagram at moon detectives i should check that to make sure i did the right one <laughs> I mean, i'm pretty sure it's Moon detectives i don't run the my 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 co-writer and co-director Right, it so he he. Oh, let me let me make sure I'm not eating my words. But if you want to follow that and see progress, we um we did this thing where we just got really talented people to help us out, and so they're like we had a pretty fun idea, and it is Moon Detectives. Yes, it is at Moon Detectives. Okay, uh, we had a pretty fun idea, and then we got a great animator, and we found voice talent that uh, we're really obsessed with. If you if you like or follow um. Aaron Tuning of, of Vine fame and now social media fame. He 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 voices a space captain. Uh, so if that's a lure for you, but yeah, I'm really excited about a bunch of stuff. I could talk about that for an entirety. I appreciate you giving me any sort of form to talk about stuff. Dude, that sounds amazing. I can't wait to check it out. Uh, me, I can't wait to see it done as well. Well, and I figure too with your sitcom, you know, you could just practice your jokes, breaking down the joke and why it's funny on Twitter, and people could follow you with that too. I mean, I mean. I should my my Twitter is for a very a very niche audience who <laughs> I haven't found yet. <laughs> Fair. Well, hopefully this is one step in that direction. Uh, Max, this has been such a pleasure. It's great, yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing your movie, your insight, your wisdom, expertise. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. Hope to come back. Yeah, let's do it again. Um, so, listeners, uh, please 
hit up Max and check out his his art, his productions. And if you have questions for Max or for us, hit us up at Leech Podcast on Twitter, as well as the Leech Podcast on Instagram. If you have special questions for Max, you can send them to me, and I'll I'll uh, I'll talk to cousin Max again and see if we can get him back on the pod sometime soon. Perfect. I'll answer any questions, probably. Probably. So as always, this is the Leech Podcast, the most visceral podcast. Thank you for being with us. I'm Evan Kate. Hope you all have a great day. Take care, y'all. Bye. This episode was hosted by Evan Kate, editing by Evan Kate, graphic design by Banks Clark, original music by Justin Klump of Podcast Sound and Music, production help by Lisa Gray of Soundmind Productions, and equipment help and consultation from Topher Thomas.